What's going on, y'all? Welcome to Help Students Win, where we talk about all things student success. My name is Jordan Davis. I'm a professional speaker, founder of JD Speaks, and your podcast host. And today is going to be all about education technology. I'm coming fresh from Orlando, fresh from beautiful 75 degree weather. We had a little bit of that in the Baltimore metro area this past weekend, so I was feeling that. I was enjoying it, and I'm spoiled to have had such good weather all week long. Now, I attended the Future of Education Technology Conference again in Orlando this past week, and I have so much value that I want to be able to share with you all today. If you're a teacher, if you're a school district leader, education technology is on your mind in some capacity, and I have a ton that I want to share. The first thing I want to do is shout out the conference organizers of FETC. Y'all did y'all thing from the communication that you all had set up to the app that you set up to make it really a seamless process to be able to navigate through the conference. I know how much work it takes to put on these giant conferences, um, even just like the branding and how beautiful it looked in the, in the convention center in Orlando. It was amazing. I want to say shout out to the Uber drivers too. Y'all were working hard last week. And I know we had FETC, which consisted of a lot of teachers, principals, administrators, and also uh, vendors, sponsors, people who had products and services that they were trying to uh, sell and offer. But then there was also the PGA show. So we're talking about the Professional Golfing uh, Association. They had a conference down there too. And so I would just see Ubers back and forth, ripping and running, working like crazy. And it was one of those situations for me where I was far enough away from the conference where I had the Uber everywhere. So I probably got in about maybe six or seven Ubers my whole time that I was there. And shout out to the Ubers who actually talk to um, the people that you pick up. I know that some people who drive Uber, depending on the cultural context of where you're at, I know in the Northeast, the Ubers that I've been in, usually a silent ride. Like usually the Uber drivers don't necessarily talk to um, you know the, the people that are doing the ride share, but it just depends on who you get. And down in Florida had some really friendly uh, super nice Ubers who got me to where I needed to go. I had such a beautiful conversation with one of my Uber drivers, because again, it's Future of Education Technology Conference and the PGA show. And so there's a lot of ripping and running and people and they picked up on the fact that there was the PGA show, but a lot of the people that I got in the car with, they didn't know that it was uh, an education conference going on. And so once I said, hey, I'm at the Future of Education Technology Conference, they just started popping off about like, oh, my son just started college here. My son, oh, they just went to the military. Well, I remember, I wish I could, I, I wish my teachers would have had something like that when I was growing up. Um, and so I got into some really great conversations with uh, my Uber drivers, and I think that gave me a lot of inspiration to see people still have some level of, of hope, enthusiasm, and energy around the idea of improving education. And I think it's important because I could have easily said I was going to an education conference and not receive any type of energy back. One thing I will say though, is that a lot of the people that was at the PGA show looked a lot like the people that were at Future of Education Technology Conference, like a lot of polos and khaki shorts. I will say that, again, in the Florida weather. Uh, and so again, um, it was a great conference to go to, and I wanted to draw some overall themes for the audience that are listening right now. Uh, just for a little bit of context, this was not my ideal crowd. It was great people, but when I walked in, I was expecting to see some 
high school teachers, some college professors, right? Some learning designers, some instructional designers. Nah, not really. It was mostly elementary school teachers, or if you weren't a teacher, you were some sort of IT professional assistant, superintendent, superintendent, presenting on what your school district was able to do. We had some teaching and learning experts there, but they kind of took a back seat to, again, a lot of the, the district level conversations around integrating technology into classrooms. And one of the first things that I've noticed about the conference was just looking at the sponsors that were there. Um, when Apple has a table, when Google has a table, that's a different like that's a different level of money and a different level of products and services that these sponsors are trying to offer. And the expo itself, one of the biggest expos that I've ever been to, they had like igloos that you could go in. It's like a whole space experience. They had robotics rings, like a, like a, it's almost like the size of a WWE ring. Uh, these robotics rings where students compete and being able to show off that level of technology and how that programming, how programming like computer science programming, robotics, esports, enhances the educational experience for students in a way that I feel like a lot of older generations can kind of dismiss. I know we make a lot of jokes about people who sit on their couch and play Madden all day or who play Fortnite all day who might play a racing game. There is like real legitimate, not only educational value, but also professional opportunities for students who engage in these type of gamified competitions in schooling. And I'll talk a little bit about that later in the episode, but the expo was crazy. As far as my experience at the conference, I can really say it was just essentially one big expo. So even the workshop sessions themselves kind of felt like expos, kind of exhibiting what it's like to integrate augmented reality into third grade science education. Like what it looks like to actually, as a teacher or even principal or school administrator, look at your learning analytics across your school and even being able to look at other schools um, and, and kind of how they're using applications. Now, if you're a principal, you wouldn't be able to necessarily look at other schools. You'll have a, view, a good view of your school, but in able, being able to talk to the learning analytics professionals, the data scientists that were there, they kind of have a bird's eye view of an entire district and can provide a school some insights about which apps they're using, which apps they're not using, which apps that are kind of on the horizon. If a school is using an app that hasn't been approved by the IT department to make sure that is checking all of the security boxes, like this is the level of conversation that was being had at the conference. And I will say that when it came to, oh yeah, well, I, I wanted to go back to my original point about the whole thing kind of feeling like it was an expo. It was such a smooth experience and I was kind of surprised by that in the sense that when I attended the American Association of College and Universities annual meeting the week before, so the week prior, that conference allowed me to, there, there was more intellectual conflict involved with that conference. There was more of a diversity of thought that was kind of built into the program, that was built into the speakers and even the format of the sessions. At FETC, we had keynote speakers, we had workshop presenters. They were fantastic and very knowledgeable about their work, but I would have appreciated if there was more conversation about what makes technology integration difficult. 
what makes technology integration difficult when it comes to access challenges, when it comes to the conversation around parents and even students using their phones or even having access to technology in the classrooms. What do we say to school districts who are thinking about completely banning phones? And so what does that do uh, when we talk about education technology and what makes the work difficult. And so I would have appreciated if there was a little bit more nuance to that conversation, bringing a diversity of perspectives, or even just those leaders talking about what made their work difficult um, and what were some barriers that they were encountering. And so one of the big takeaways for me is that seeing things like virtual reality and augmented reality is not only improving the educational experience of students, but also seeing that as um, increased access for students. When we talk about students with uh, different learning disabilities and learning challenges, being able to literally hold a butterfly in your hand, like with augmented reality, you have a lens and it's pointed towards your hand and being able to spin it and being able to zoom in and being able to take notes, that's increasing access in a way that just a lecture about biological science and how uh, you know butterflies develop, that's a completely different learning experience. And so that, that's some of the things that I took away. I would also say that what wasn't talked about what was touched on at the conference, and I really wanted to get to this, this is a big point that I wanted to make. One of the things that was touched on at the conference was the importance of students learning, quote unquote, 21st century skills, so skills that students will need to go into data science, to go into computer programming and computer engineering, and how there might be access barriers for students from historically marginalized groups. And I appreciated how one of the speakers on this topic, when we talk about, uh, let's say, middle school students learning how to code, for example, that conversation is important, but what's even more vital in order for students, specifically all students, to be able to grasp those skills and feel compelled to learn those skills is the integration of career and technical education alongside the hard skill. Because if students don't see themselves in the field, if they don't see a cultural significance to becoming a computer programmer, to becoming a computer engineer, a lot of students have preconceived notions about what that career field even looks like. And so I heard a few speakers in different sessions say at the conference about how there is this stereotypical image that we have of computer scientists and we think that uh, programmers and coders just sit behind a computer all day, uh, you know, for eight hours a day, kind of in their cubicle, in their box, just coding all day. And they were able to kind of break down that stereotype and, and say that coding is much more collaborative and teamwork oriented and creative than a lot of people think before they get into it. And so one, kind of demystifying what it means to be a computer programmer in a professional sense, even for middle school students. Middle school students love talking about career stuff. Like we think that that's gonna be over top of their heads or even there are probably some educators that think that's, oh, that's not my job to tie in the, the career stuff. That's up to the career counselors at our school. That's up to the academic counselors at our school to help students figure out how the skills that they're learning is gonna to apply to their lives. But at the end of the day, it's important for students to have contextualized learning. So I'm learning this skill and reinforcing the why behind it, reinforcing the practicality of it and reinforcing what makes 
it difficult to create the world that I want to create in order to uh, do the work that I see myself doing and contributing to. And so I, I, I really believe that even in a state like Florida, where critical race theory is banned, where there are bans on even diversity, equity and inclusion offices and the work that they do, seeing those types of bans and those types of policies as an access barrier to technology oriented fields, to data oriented fields is big because there's already a dearth of historically marginalized groups in those fields. And if students are not able to connect the skill that they're learning to their cultural background, to somebody who might be in the field that looks like them, that's excited about their work, that enjoys their work, that is paid well for their work, that's what's gonna compel a student in order to pursue that in high school and in college. It's not just about learning the skill or making it easier for the students. It's making a clear alignment between this is a skill that you can build and this is how it connects with, with your personality, with your culture, with the type of lifestyle that you wanna live, um, with people that you might already know or whom you might look up to that has also developed these skills and has been able to, to learn and grow from that. And so when we talk about access, I really believe that the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion offices, but specifically the work of teachers to teach a class that is culturally relevant, a class that is culturally responsive, and a class that embeds social emotional learning, that embeds conversations around equity and representation. That's what's gonna get historically marginalized students uh, to fully invest in those opportunities to build on those uh, computer science skills and those programming skills. So keeping all of that in mind is key. Even when we talk about tracking in our schools, about how certain students are tracked into math classes in early elementary school that, or even middle elementary school, that it's hard for them to break out of that path. It's hard for them to be able to display a level of knowledge that gets them to again and again it's this it's sorting students into certain classes based on what they've displayed in classes that don't even fully tap into the ways that they want to express their knowledge or the ways that they want to express what they've learned and so when we talk about tracking when we talk about uh the declining numbers of black educators of latinx educators how our classrooms are becoming more diverse, but at a faster pace than that of the teachers that these students are being taught by. Those are some of the access barriers that we need to talk about when we talk about education. They made a big point at the conference about how there are many school districts where every student has a, a laptop. There's a one-to-one -one ratio uh, between students and laptops. There's a lot of celebration around that. Every student in our school district has an iPad. So the physical technology is there in a lot of circumstances, um, but we need to think about access when it comes to representation and when it comes to uh, culturally relevant, culturally responsive pedagogy. I would say too, also the availability of opportunities for students to build skills along the lines of technology careers. And so there was uh, a stat that I learned at the conference that uh, over half of schools in the U.S. offer a computer science class, and that's a great stat to uphold. But a school like Maryland, 
where I, I believe it was 96% of schools in Maryland have some sort of, or school districts in Maryland have some sort of computer science class built into their curriculum. Where you look at a state like Louisiana where only 36% of school districts in Louisiana have some sort of computer science class built into their programming. And so that comes down to capacity, uh, expertise that teachers have uh, within schools that get bandwidth. Do you have teachers that actually have the time and the resources to be able to teach that in your schools? Is your school board, are those skills top of mind for your school board um, and your curriculum committee, the people that are developing the curriculum? So all of these things converge to create either access opportunities, opportunities to access uh, these career fields that there's a high need for. The number of computer scientists uh, positions that are opening is, is growing. And so there's a big need for that. But there's also, you know, there's a stat that only 5.8% of uh, students at K through 12 actually go on to take a computer science class. And so breaking down those barriers to that was a lens that I developed at the conference that I didn't go in with uh, that, I, that I'm taking out of it. Also talking about rural communities too and how even having the physical technologies is a challenge. And when they do have the physical technologies, do they have the broadband speed? Do they have like the literal technological bandwidth to be able to support technology integration? And then lastly, the preparation of teachers to teach computer science where the research says that most computer science teachers are not computer scientists so they're being asked to develop skills and literally i heard a teacher talk about how they said oh you've taught math before and you've taught science before you probably know how to teach computer computer science it's like nah not necessarily like i have math and science expertise but expecting me to uh to teach this and kind of in part be an expert on something that I do not have the expertise in, that's a real challenge. And so how do we support educators in STEM education that aren't necessarily in STEM fields? How do we give them the tools to engage all students in a way that promotes access, in a way that promotes growth, and then also implementing social emotional learning and culturally relevant pedagogy so that all students, no matter your background, no matter um, your, your learning, your learning challenges or your learning style or even um, you know your race your ethnicity where you're coming from as a student uh, you can be able to see a class as being helpful for you so now that we've talked about that i do want to get into some of the fun aspects of the conference i learned a ton about esports more than i expected and i know that esports is growing exponentially um at least in my brain when i think about esports i think about people that are sitting in a gaming chair playing madden because like that's what i've seen on commercials you know i'm a, I'm a big madden player myself so that's what i associate with but esports is so much more than that um you know there's robotics education there's uh cpu based gaming where students are playing on the computer. There are students that are literally going on to college and getting scholarships for their expertise in esports. And again, it could look like a ton of different games from Madden to, uh, and Fortnite to literally like robotics and building the robots and having them compete in different games against students, not only from across the country, but around the world. And so the World Robotics Conference, the conference where 
K through college students come together to compete in these competitions. It's held in Dallas, Texas. It's held here in the U.S. And so opening my mind uh, to what esports education looks like. And I was inspired by the esports companies. There were several represented at the conference, but I was inspired by those who took social emotional learning very seriously and actually developed resources for their teachers to be able to integrate that into um, the, the robotics curriculum. Because again, most of the teachers that are teaching this, that are uh, the robotics coaches that are taking the students to these conferences, they're not robotics experts. And so by the time students get to sixth or seventh grade, the students know more about the robots than the teachers do. And so it's one of these fascinating circumstances that I'm seeing where students very early on are the knowledge experts in the room. And so what is the role of the educator when the educator themselves is not the knowledge expert in the room, but instead getting educators to see themselves as facilitators, as, as coaches and as mentors, as motivators for students, and building out those resources so that when a kid's robot falls apart or when a team has worked so hard on their robot and they get defeated in the final championship, what does that follow-up conversation look like with students? How are those students internalizing um, the failure or the lessons that are learned? When students get a big win, when they're able to you know, beat their rival in a particular competition that might be at a school uh, across town, are we teaching students sportsmanship? Are we teaching students uh, you know, gratitude and uh, you know, the importance of teamwork and collaboration and being able to build each other up instead of hold, withholding information and trying to hoard uh, you know, different designs for my robots. These are my designs. I'm hoarding this from other teams. Are we giving students that type of education too that's going to go on um, to do great things for, for them? And now, as a speaker, I'm a huge proponent of social emotional learning, but I think it's important to not just have the school assembly or the workshop that's separate. Students see it as important when they see it connected to what they value. And these students are so ambitious and intelligent and so driven to do well in robotics, in, in esports. And really, um, a, a lot of the STEM fields, but specifically in talking about esports, these students are passionate about it. There's really um, a familial community that seems to be built um, really starting in middle school and going through college. There are some people that uh, some students that stay on the same robotics team all through high school, they go to the same state university and now they're on the robotics team for that state university. And so that's the, the type of education and the, the draw of those types of programs is that it's not just preparing students to go on Twitch and to make a whole bunch of money making Twitch videos. Now that's, now that's one avenue is to be a content creator, but to also develop the skills to be uh, a mechanical engineer to be a computer scientist and learning how to work in teams and learning how to collaborate. That's really the, the draw of a lot of those programs. And again, that was a lens that I didn't come in with, but that I'm coming out with. Now, I had a fascinating conversation about Ovation. And Ovation, uh, I'll shout them out here. I've tried my best in the episode not to make this just one big ad where I'm just shouting out all of the education technology companies, but Ovation is a special one. Um, and, I, and I wanted to talk about it on here. It is a platform that allows 
people who want to improve their public speaking skills to do so using virtual reality. And so you download Ovation to your, to your laptop and then you also have it on your, your device. If you're using just the device, you won't even need your laptop. Um, but if you have a Oculus or some type of virtual reality headset, you can have Ovation on that headset. And what it does, it, it puts you in a public speaking environment and you can scale it anywhere from seven people around a conference room engaging in a panel interview to you're giving a keynote speech in front of 1300 people, right? And so it has these different settings and different environments to where you can improve your public speaking skills. And it focuses very much on the technical aspects of public speaking. For example, I learned from the folks at Ovation that about 150 words per minute is the, the comfort sweet spot when it comes to listening and retaining information for humans. And so if you are somewhere around that 150 word mark, Ovation is gonna be like, yeah, you're pretty on par with that. But if you're creeping into the 200 words, some people even in the 250 word range, Ovation is gonna be able to pinpoint that in its analysis of your speech and ask you to slow it down a little bit and even give you guidance on how you might go about doing that. And one of the questions that I have for Ovation is, have you developed a mobile app? Because I think this could be hugely helpful for not only students, but working professionals. You might have like mid-level managers that do a lot of public speaking and you know might be pitching their business. You have entrepreneurs that are pitching their businesses. This has so many, you know, college professors who are teaching these big lecture courses that might want to improve how they're delivering those lectures. There are a ton of different uh, use cases for this. And I think it would even increase the access of this type of education even more if it were built into a virtual app. And it essentially said, no, because people don't use smartphones for, for VR experiences anymore. It's all about the MetaQuest, it's all about the Oculus, uh, right, in, in these big, new, fancy, $500, $600 virtual reality headsets. And I really started to, to think and even look into a little bit why phone-based VR has kind of died. I attended several sessions that focused on augmented reality using smartphones. But when we talk about virtual reality and something having to be on your face and on your eyes, there, uh, it makes me think about Google Cardboard which was very popular in the early 2010s, especially in the K through 12 space. I remember using a Google Cardboard and I kind of got reintroduced to it in my master's degree program in learning design and technology and giving students even just that little bit of exposure to VR can be uh, immensely helpful, especially when we talk about a skill in public speaking that is still one of the number one fears in the world that so many people have challenges with and would benefit from that level of exposure to public speaking situations. And now we have third party companies that are building VR headsets specifically for smartphones. So it was surprising to me to see one of the leaders in the VR field kind of put a death sentence on phone-based VR because I think there's just so, so much of an opportunity to provide a level of access to skill development and access to learning through our phones 
that a lot of companies are overlooking. Now, maybe in 15 years, it's definitely gonna be obsolete because I think 15 years from now, a majority of households are gonna have at least one VR headset um, in, their, in their house, right? Like that's, I feel like, I don't think that VR is a fad in, in any sense. But at the same time, I think introducing phone-based phone VR as the first step in being exposed to it and you being able to use it quickly. Like if I'm studying for a presentation, I don't wanna spend 400 to $500 and what I've already spent 400 to $500 on my books for that semester, I don't wanna kick out another one of that just to practice on this. Or I know that some colleges and universities have a VR headset on their campuses, which is fantastic. And they might have one or two and students can um, use it there. And I think that's, that's definitely a possibility. But when we talk about middle school students being able to use it, when we talk about high school students being able to use it, just even the ability to take it home. You know, these phone-based VR headsets might only cost, you know, 30 or $40 to slip your phone into. And you're not gonna have the same experience as an Oculus, but you're gonna have something that at least gets you exposure uh, to it. And Ovation talked about too how uh, the graphics that are built into the technology and the programming power uh, that it would take, it, you know, the phone isn't able to handle that in the same way that the VR headsets are able to because they're designed for that type of engagement. And I understand all of that, uh, but it was just fascinating to me to think about accessing VR, the challenges to accessing VR, and how we can expose students to that, especially when we talk about a, a skill that's so crucial in public speaking. Now, if I had to take one thing away from this conference, it would be that being a teacher is really hard. <laughs> like being a teacher is not easy in 2024. You have to have the teaching and learning expertise to be a great teacher. You have to, to know the content. You're teaching uh, students who are more diverse uh, in classrooms than ever before. And you have to learn how to integrate the technology in a way that's going to help students and learn the technology yourself. That's the biggest part. Um, a lot of my work around inclusive pedagogy uh, and I think that there's opportunity to connect those two conversations, right? What makes it challenging to teach inclusively and to teach with a lens of inclusivity and what makes it challenging to integrate technology? I think there's a lot of overlaps in those two conversations. And I know on the technology side, it's, oh, I don't like TikTok. Or I don't like uh, when my kids use phones when I'm trying to talk to them. So I'm gonna ban my students from using it. Or, you know, I don't understand the technology myself. So how could I have students use it? I can't have students being more knowledgeable in this than I am. I think there's work in supporting educators and giving them the skills and the knowledge that it needs to cultivate these collaborative learning environments where technology is a part of the conversation and equity and inclusion is a part of the conversation, but is also getting educators to decenter themselves and let them be okay with not being the experts in the room, inviting students' expertise in intentionally as contributing to the learning environment. And I'll leave you all on, on this note. There was one workshop presenter that I heard that simply said, your students are learning without you. 
And that's a good thing. It's a good thing that your students are learning without you. They have ChatGPT, they have their group chats, they have TikTok. There's so many different resources that they're pulling in and that are informing how they show up in the classroom. It is now our new required learning as educators to be better facilitators, to be better motivators, to connect what students are learning into the classroom, what, to connect what students are learning in the classroom to their lives and the things that they find relevant outside of the classroom. As we wrap up today, I wanted to get to the playbook where I try to give practical pieces of knowledge to teachers and staff working with students. So if you're a teacher, if you're a superintendent, if you're somebody who works with students, please grab your notebook, pull that out. And the one thing that I wanna to touch on in this episode or in this segment of the playbook is to let your students be defiant. It is okay for your student to come to you and say, Ms. Jones, Ms. Johnson, I know that you asked me to do this particular assignment, but could you explain a little bit how this is gonna help me? And I think, and I was talking to some school district leaders a couple of weeks ago, and their challenges in integrating diversity, equity, and inclusion into their teaching practices across the district, like getting teachers to really adopt this. And there's this ideology or notion that students should be seen, not heard. Like students should not question the professionals in the room when it comes to their education. And I think that type of mindset, it brings up the challenge that it is to inspire students to learn skills that are really difficult. It names how difficult it is to tell students how delayed gratification in their learning is important. So that's one part of the conversation. But I think the other part of the conversation is getting students to be more autonomous over their learning, to not just assimilate into classroom environments, to come into classes with their own learning goals and to prioritize their learning goals sometimes over that of the teacher. And a lot of teachers will probably disagree with this. When we talk about students having an apathy toward education, we have students that are more skeptical about college and their careers than they've ever been before. Students who are more anxious, students who were in the midst of a youth mental health crisis. I think breaking down those things that contribute to the power dynamics in the classroom, being able to ask students at the beginning of the class, what are your course goals? Having a transparent syllabus, having a transparent course design, and being able to explain to your students the significance of the assignments that they have. Even if those assignments are imposed by a principal, are imposed by the district, specific conversations that you as a teacher might not align with or specific standards that you might not align with, explaining to students why they might be learning it, empowering them to push back on a few things because that level of agency and that level of confidence is going to serve students well in high school and college when they have to make decisions for themselves about what they major in, about what classes they take, about what internships and professional opportunities they apply to. And so if I could share one thing with educators today, it would be to let your students be defiant. This past semester, there were some assignments that I had that I just didn't do. There were assignments that I had that I might've done 
at a 60% effort or 50% effort because those assignments didn't align strongly enough with my own learning goals for the course. And there's a give and take relationship. I'm not saying that students should come into the class and take over and tell the teacher what to teach. But at the same time, when students are able to conserve their energy, when students are able to build relationships and collaborate in ways that you as an educator didn't see or didn't set up for those students, when students can draw their own connections, again, between what's being taught in the classroom and what they're experiencing outside of the classroom, that's what creates the students that we need. That's what creates students who are going to be leaders, that are going to be intentional about their college and professional decisions, and students that are going to be happier and less stressed because they don't feel constricted by the confines that sometimes we as educators uh, you know, restrict students in their imaginative ability and their ability to cultivate the skills that they want to cultivate. So let your students be defiant. With that, I'm going to close the episode. My name is Jordan Davis. Thank you all for your time. And one last thing, I had a question uh, that I wanted to pose, and this is my listener question for today. Is it hard to be, is it harder to be a teacher today than it was 20 years ago? I'm going to ask that one more time. Today's listener question is, is it harder to be a teacher today than it was 20 years ago? Leave your thoughts uh, in an email to me at jordan at jdspeaks.com. You can send it in a written email or an audio message, and you might see your contributions on a future episode of Help Students Win. My name is Jordan Davis. Be well. Thank you all for your time, and I'll see you on the next episode.